0: this episode of Parallax views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of parallax views on patreon.com/ parallax views and those supporters get a producer's credit shout out on each and every edition of the show. So producers credit shout outs to mark. Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Grass, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, emilia Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project. M E E R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, we're going to be exploring a rather unique topic, namely American tourism in the Soviet Union. Joining us for the occasion is Sean Guillory, host of the SRB podcast, a show dedicated to understanding the politics, history, and culture of Russia and wider Eurasia. Sean's latest project, is the fascinating series Teddy Goes to the USSR, which tells the story of American citizen Teddy Rowe and his visit to the USSR in 1968. What can this story tell us about how Americans and Soviets viewed each other during the Cold War? And what insights can it offer us into the lived experience of everyday people in the Soviet Union? Find out in my conversation with Sean Gillery on his new podcast "Teddy Goes to the USSR." Welcome back to Parallax, you Sean Gillery of the SRB podcast and uh, the newest podcast project you have. Uh, Teddy goes to the USSR. How are
1: you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be back.
0: So if you could, for my listeners, uh, maybe you could go over your background and your interest in Russia sure. and the USSR.
1: Okay. Well, um, I have a PhD for what it's worth in Russian history from UCLA that I got uh, in 2009. So my, my interest in in the region and Russian history uh, in general um, comes from that. Of course, that's where I, you know, learned and read a lot and wrote a lot about uh, Russian history, um, particularly in the Soviet period in the 1920s and 30s. Um, And then uh, in 2005, I started a blog, which was called at the time Sean's Russia blog, um, where I started to write about Russian contemporary politics. And then in 2015, I turned that into a podcast, the SRB podcast, which I'm doing uh, exclusively instead of blogging. <clears throat> in fact, I don't do much actual writing anymore. I do mostly audio stuff. Uh, so that, that's where my interest, interest in, and, and specifically uh, for my dissertation, I wrote about youth, particularly the Young Communist League in the 1920s. But my main interests in terms of Soviet history are um, say the social, social life of Soviet citizens. How did they live, experience, and shape the Soviet Union and the Soviet system in their everyday life? Um, issues of identity, um, and of course, things like Stalinism, political violence, and and those issues that are intimately connected with the, the history of the 20th century.
0: So let's talk about uh, Teddy Goes to the USSR. Okay. This is about Teddy Rowe, uh, an American tourist who ends up going to the USSR. How does, well, I want to talk about how this project came about, but okay. let's talk about
1: who Teddy Rowe was. Okay. So te- well Teddy Rowe is he's still right, alive right. sorry my apologies <laughs> he's still alive um he's he's in his very late 80s he's actually not doing very well health wise I don't I don't know how much longer he'll be with us but nonetheless he lives in Billings Montana um in his career he worked as a senior staff member for Mike Mansfield who was the giant senator from Montana who was the democratic majority leader in the 1960s and then for the after a, um Mansfield retired, he worked for Lee Metcalf, another giant of, um, of um, uh, Montanan, but also American congressional politics. Uh, so he spent his life working in Congress. And um, in 1968, he got a grant to travel to Brazil, which because he's had a long interest in Latin American issues. And then also he he was interested in the Soviet Union. So he got a grant from the Political Science Association to go to Brazil and then the Soviet Union. Uh, What's interesting about him and his trip is that he went in 1968, which we all know was a volatile year in many places around the world, Um, not in the Soviet Union itself, but certainly in terms of the Soviet intervention and invasion of Czechoslovakia. Um, But, he, so he was there in 1968, you know, we know what was going on here in, in the United States and, and Teddy actually was involved, at least in his congressional duties, dealing with civil rights legislation in the 1960s. So he was very much personally involved in the politics of the United States at the time. Um, but more interestingly, he goes to the Soviet Union for three months, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1968, from about April to August. And he, um, he go- visits every single Soviet Republic, which is the real unique part. So he didn't do what most tourists did, American tourists in particular, You know, your typical Leningrad, Moscow, going to see the churches and the sites. He actually went from Moscow to Leningrad through the Baltics, Ukraine, Belarus, and then through the North and South Caucasus into Central Asia, and then finally the far east of um, you know, Vladivostok. Uh, in the former Soviet Union. So he you know this is a really his trip is a really, really unique perspective in that in terms of experience. But also as I found out after I started talking to Teddy, and we'll get into how I came across him in the first place in a bit, but he also has a 400 page diary that he kept at the time and he has about 200 photographs that he took. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah so it's quite a it's quite a documentary, uh, cachet of his experience there. And I was lucky enough to, to be able to go to Billings in in right before the pandemic hit, actually, and interview him over three days about his trip, his diary, his experiences and observations.
0: So it's interesting because it's called Teddy Goes to the USSR. But in a way, uh, this series that you're doing, it's not simply about Teddy Rowe it's sort of how Teddy Rowe ends up allowing us an insight into what the USSR was like from the perspective of an American who was visiting, you know, and it's interesting that an American is visiting the USSR in 1968, because, you know, in America, we're told, oh, the the USSR is the ultimate evil, the greatest enemy. Uh, So it's a rear window into, well, what was the USSR like uh, for both its citizens and Someone who was visiting as a
1: tourist. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and and that's the thing. We and I grew up, you know, I grew up in the '80s, so you know, in Reagan's, you know, ratcheting up the Cold War, the Evil Empire, all of this stuff. And and growing up, um, I didn't know that people, let alone Americans, went in to on vacation to the Soviet Union and were went as tourists. And after doing in doing research for this documentary, I learned that. At, by the late 1970s, about 70,000 Americans a year were going to the Soviet Union. Now, most of them were going on your typical vacation that you would go anywhere, week to 10 days. A lot of the people who did go had a fam- familial or personal connection to the former Soviet Union. So they had relatives who lived there or they wanted to you know, track down ancestral homes and things like this. Um, or just do the standard, you know, go around the country on a package tour. Uh, so that was an interesting phenomenon for me. And, and you're right, the documentary is a window. Teddy's trip is a window into all sorts of issues dealing that are going on in the Soviet Union and the broader Cold War and U.S.-Soviet relations in that time. Um, so yeah, it's a, and, and it's interesting because he Teddy is very much a Cold War product the way he sees the world around him in terms of Soviet life, how he evaluates Soviet life, the metrics he uses to evaluate the success and failure of the Soviet system are really, you know, issues that were prominent during the Cold War itself. And we could, of course, get into some of those.
0: So how did you come to meet Teddy
1: Rowe and how did this project come together? Well, that's, that's a fascinating story uh, in and of itself. Um, Sometime in late I think it was October, 2019, I got an email from a Ukrainian historian named Edward Andershenko and, and Edward's a fascinating guy. He's a trained historian, but mostly does journalism. He lives in Kiev. Um, and in 2015, the Ukrainian government threw open its doors to its KGB archive. And a lot of post-Soviet states have done this. The Baltics have done this. Ukraine, Belarus hasn't, Russia hasn't. In other places, it's a variety of different access. And what Uh, Edward has been doing for the last couple of years is going through the KGB archive and finding all sorts of interesting, silly, curious, weird documents about what the KGB was doing and how they were monitoring Ukrainian society. Um, And amongst the, the files that he's looked at, he found this KGB report about an American tourist. And he he's a listener of my podcast, and he sent me this email. I we didn't know each other, and um, he you know kind of suggested, hey, maybe this guy Roe is still around. You know, I'd like to write an article, and Edward has done that. He wrote an article in Russian about it, and you know, given my interest in podcasts, he said maybe you'd be interested in doing a podcast. And it, initially, I thought it was just going to be a you know a one one off deal specifically around the report. Um, so. After that, I happened to be able to track Teddy down through Google searches um, and contacted him. And that was a weird situation because it's like you're cold emailing this guy. Uh, you don't know if it's actually him. <laughs> and you're like, hey, um, are you this Teddy Road that went to the Soviet Union in 1968? Um, yeah, well, well, what was his initial response to that? Well, he was he was surprised and actually incredibly flattered. Um, and he's since becoming and more and more flattered because we we reopened the chapter in his life that he had since kind of buried, right? And he's been doing a lot, you know, rereading his diary and remembering all of this stuff. So it was really good, especially since he's been recovering from cancer for the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, he, was, he wasn't surprised because he knew the KGB was going through his stuff. Um, but of course, you know, he never thought that he would find any kind of confirmation of it but um it it wasn't a surprise to him but at the same time i you know I, i bet it was quite a creepy feeling on his part especially since the kgb report itself um they clearly took photographs of his diary and translated passages of it because the report has a couple of passages from his diary so you know if you consider like you know a couple of spooks rummaging through your hotel room and digging up your you know through your underwear define stuff it's probably somewhat unsettling even if you know what's going on
0: so I'm just curious how did it become when did you get to the point where you said this is going to make a a sort of really good series not just like one episode but like a whole
1: podcast series I think it was after I so what happened is I emailed him and then he told me he had this diary and when I started to go through his diary I kind of realized oh there's kind of there's more here and you know honestly like and, and I don't think it's it's wrong to say this. You know, a story about uh, an American tourist, even if there's a KGB report about you, is not so interesting. I mean, I couldn't sustain a whole story just relaying how Teddy saw things and where he was going to the Soviet Union. So um, through looking at the diary and then talking to Teddy, and then of course after interviewing him, I realized that there was a lot of material for for something else, for something more um you know uh, along the way
0: so if we could uh, let's talk more about um uh, not just teddy but like this idea of tourists going to mm-hmm. the ussr uh you know at the height of the cold war what what would lead someone to go to the soviet union because to me there there is that sort of sense of okay you're, you're taught in the us at that time you know the the ultimate evil the soviet union Uh, you're probably like scared to go there in a way because of everything you're taught here. So what leads people to sort of go to the Soviet Union in this time?
1: Well, I should first say that all I know about this is from the the scholarship of two people uh, who are featured in the podcast, um, Alex Hazanov and Andrew Jacobs, who both wrote about tourism to the Soviet Union in the post-war period. Um, First and foremost, you know, the irony of the Cold War was that Because the Soviet Union was brandished as so bad and so evil and so antithetical to American life in all its respects, um, it made people curious. I mean, I was one of those, you know, hearing as a kid about how there's this evil, evil place, of course, the exoticism that comes from that makes you wonder like, okay, what's really going on there? What is it like? Is it really... Go ahead. Uh, no, I was going to say, it's sort of like, I remember when I would go
0: into the, the video stores to get video rental stores, you know, I would always end up looking at the horror movie section because it's like, oh, that's the forbidden taboo <laughs> yeah. thing. And it's the same sort of uh dynamic there.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's the same. You have an, you had, there's an attraction to things that are taboo. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, and then there's the question of, you know, are they really, are they like us or not then like, are the Russians, Soviet people, are they really different from us or are they, you know, is this just a larger thing and people are people, right? So you're kind of curious to see, okay, are they really the robots that they're portrayed as in American propaganda? You know, how do people live in this society that is so antithetical to, you know, what we've been told is completely antithetical to our life and and going to a country that, you know, wanted to destroy us. Um, so the danger of it too was attractive. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting, uh, even Teddy get sucked into this, not by choice, not consciously, but I think the fear of the idea that the Soviet Union was this totalitarian state made even tourists kind of conduct themselves as if they were, you know, performing some kind of espionage. And this could be even, you know, tiny things like taking photographs on the sly because you're not supposed to take photographs of military Doing things like, you know, like Teddy did, like keeping a journal and putting the journal in code, right? He's writing the, the code in English and Spanish, and he says, Greg's shorthand. So you're, you're, you're forced to, even as a tourist, you're, you can potentially be sucked in to the world of Cold War international espionage. Um, and that attracted people, right? That they could, you know, live out their own kind of James Bond. Um, so that was another reason, and a final reason was again, as I stated earlier, if you had some sort some sort of family connection, um, you know, you wanted to like visit your homeland, visit relatives, or something like this. So a lot of a lot of tourists were Ukrainians and people from the Baltics, et cetera.
0: So right now, I, I think uh, you have the first two episodes released, mm-hmm. uh, and episode two is uh, called Teddy Meets the KGB, and I guess uh, when he goes to Kiev, he uh, discovers that someone went through his luggage. And then it's only years later, later that his suspicions are confirmed. Let's talk about that KGB report and uh,
1: what's in it. Well, um, so first is, is, is the funny story of how Teddy realized that people were going through his stuff. Because, again, as I said, you're kind of you play you kind of cosplay espionage. He had a suspicion and he um, left a string on his luggage and of course, you know, when he'd get back, he'd check it in and would be disturbed, right? So he knew somebody was going through his stuff. So what he did in response, which I think is really funny, he left them a note. He wrote a note, left it in his luggage and said, hey, I know you're going through my stuff. If you want, if you have something to ask me, just ask and I'll tell you whatever. I'm not, I don't have anything to hide. Um, so that was, that was kind of funny. But the report itself, in many respects, it reflects Not Teddy's activities, but what the Soviets, how they understood this American tourist. Now, it's important to say that why was Teddy followed or why was he monitored? Well, because of his political connections. You know, yes, they had surveillance over tourists, and we can talk about how that was conducted. But for people like Teddy, if you were politically connected, right, the staffer of Mike Mansfield, the Democratic majority leader in the Senate, I mean, they're going to be interested. Like, why is this guy here? What is he doing? He can't certainly just be a tourist. And in fact, they accuse him of engaging in, in espionage and, or, in, or he's connected to the American security services in some way. Um, they also accuse him of spreading his Americanness, So like criticizing the Soviet system, pumping American values, pumping the American political system, things like this. They strangely accuse him of trying to obtain a manuscript to publish abroad, which is another fear the Soviets had after the the Pasternak affair with Doctor Zhivago, um, the decade before. Um, so it 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 the KGB report presents a, an interesting contradiction, because on the one hand, the Soviet government wanted tourists; they wanted the hard currency. They wanted to showcase the Soviet system. They wanted to normalize it. They wanted to say, hey, look, and and also it's important to note that this is also the period of detente, right? So relations between the United States and the Soviet Union are better than they had been before and then certainly after in the 1980s. So they want to normalize and increase cultural exchange and stuff with foreigners. They're interested in foreigners coming. But at the same time, they're highly suspicious and paranoid about what those foreigners will be up to when they're in the Soviet Union. And so it's this tension that you see partially the, the, um, the KGB refor- report reflecting.
0: Let's talk about that a little bit more, about like why the Soviets would want tourists mm-hmm. uh, to come to the Soviet Union.
1: Well, I mean, first off, like I said, to showcase the system, they wanted to show, particularly for people from the third world, right, from the global south, to show the Soviet Union is a model of development that can be adopted, right? You know, here we were a backward peasant country 30 years before, just like you in the third world. And look what we've done. We defeated Nazism, we've reconstructed, and now we have a normal, you know, style society right? With all technological advancements and things of the day, you know, television, radios, Metro, all of that stuff, literature, culture, et cetera. So a lot of it is just this, like opening yourself up to the world, but also, you know, having Westerners come, um, to, to see the Soviet union, to get the hard currency. I mean, in tourists, the, the agency, um, responsible for tourism inside and outside the Soviet union, um, was a huge state corporation. They wanted the money. They wanted the hard currency. And this was a way to get it because once tourists came to the Soviet Union, they were given, they were almost on a different currency system of sorts. They were given coupons and kind of like traveler's checks so they could collect the hard currency. So these are some of the, and, and also, like I said, I think the goal to normalize the Soviet system is a real important point. For the authorities,
0: I want to get more into the uh, the sort of surveillance system that they had for keeping taps on tourists. But first, the other thing I want to note here is that just the idea of uh, American tourists coming to the Soviet Union. The other aspect that interests me is uh, I'm assuming you know you're an American tourist that goes to the Soviet Union. That, you know, there's probably paranoia about like why are they here? Are they here for ulterior motive reasons? And I'm I'm sure that that's also going on with. The U.S. government, too, right. thinking, oh, what, what, what are these people going to the Soviet Union for? Is that
1: also true? It was in the early 60s. In the late 50s and early 60s, there was actually a report, and you can find it on the, the website for the podcast, teddy2ussr.com. Um, it was a report that was commissioned by the U.S. Senate about the fear of Americans going to the Soviet Union and coming back as vehicles of Soviet propaganda, Um, So in, in the early cold war, there was that concern by the, by the mid sixties, this attitude changed because the United States, you know, it, the United States government understood soft power very well. And they understood that they were very good at it far better than in, in the competition of soft power, the United States would beat the Soviets pretty much almost every time. I mean, you can even see the, the, that today, um, The Soviets had soft power, but it wasn't like the American apparatus. Um, So the idea was, is that American tourists serve as wonderful ambassadors of the American system, American values to be in dialogue with Soviet people and talk about things about how life was in the United States and how it was much better than capitalism was much better than Soviet communism. So the United States really, the government really turned in towards of how it understood tourism by the mid-60s to be a vehicle in the larger ideological and cultural struggle. Um, The other thing that, the other reason why they, they, but the one problem they had with tourists is that the Soviets would constantly complain to the American embassy about how American tourists wouldn't behave themselves. <laughs> so and, and not just in like breaking, like, you know, bringing over illicit literature, pornography, Bibles, whatever, but also just the way they conducted themselves, getting drunk, um, you know, engaging in black market activities, meeting with suspicious people, whatever, whatever. Uh, but a lot of times the Soviets look the other way because A, they didn't want to create an international scandal, and they wanted the money. They wanted tourists to feel like they could come to the Soviet Union and be safe. There were a couple of incidents that became international scandals, um, but they were surprisingly rare for the, the long period of the Cold War.
0: So with, with regards to the surveillance systems, uh, mm-hmm. how, how do they work? The, the sort of, how do they keep tabs on tourists?
1: So again, it's important on who they're keeping tabs on. So like a person like Teddy... And this could be, you know, somebody like Teddy, journalists, um, other people connected to the American government or say the American economy, you know, people who have some sort of profile, they could get followed, wiretaps, harassed, uh, their luggage searched, their rooms searched. And this would be by domestic KGB officers uh, who are carrying out these operations. And then, you know, and we've heard over the years of very extreme ones from using you know, honey traps with using women to Russian, Soviet women to you know, doing all sorts of nefarious activities. But most of the surveillance when it came to tourism was by in-tourist guides. So when you were on an in-tourist tour or a package tour, you were assigned a guide in every city you went or a group of guides. And if you were with a, a group tour, you'd have guides running the group who would do translations and tell you about the Soviet society and stuff. One of the thing, and and these guides are interesting because most of them are early 20s. Most of them are young women who studied foreign languages. They're interested in foreigners. Um, They're interested in Western culture. Um, But one of their jobs is that every day they had to write a report detailing the activities of the people they were leading around. Um, and this was an incredibly, from the evidence that I've seen and read about, this is an incredibly unsavory, uh, tedious, um, bureaucratic exercise. And in fact, um, in the memoir of uh, Oleg Kalugin, who is a N- uh, KGB general, he said that all of this information, the vast majority of the information gathered by in tourist guides was just useless. It was just paper. Um, there's no actionable uh, intelligence gathered there because I mean these people are just mostly they're just there to be tourists, right? Um, to the point where, uh, and I feature one of these in in the first ep- in the second episode, in tourist guides understood that they could just game the system because the KGB people who were in charge of this were like the lowest of the low. They were either old guys, retired but still hanging on or like the most incompetent, lowest level ranking people who would sit in the fifth floor of Soviet, the big Soviet hotels and monitor activities and get these reports and meet these in-tourist guides to file their daily reports. And uh, one of the in-tourist guides that I, I talk about went to see these KGB guys and just immediately realized that they're just these old guys, these old washouts that are just like harmless. (laughs) She described, she describes it as like, all I wanted to do is like serve them some tea. (laughs) And she just started making reports up. You know, she made up some tourist names and started to write the reports, you know, showing herself in a favorable light, and then like circulating them between each other, like in tourist guides, like sharing and copying. And so a lot of it also speaks to the fact that on the one hand, you have this State where you're monitoring foreigners and domestics, et cetera, and you're using informants, which is another thing I didn't mention. And then you have this total shit show on the ground where it's just a performance. It's is as, as Alex Hazanov says in the in the podcast. You know, you produce reports because your job is to produce, Your job you produce reports because your job is to produce reports. It's a bureaucratic inertia.
0: So it's interesting, you said earlier uh, that Teddy is obviously a product of the Cold War. And I'm interested in teasing that out a bit. What, what sure. do we mean when we say he's a product of the Cold War? And how
1: does that maybe color his perceptions of his experiences while in the Soviet Union? I think the best way that this comes across is how he measures Soviet society. So, what is he interested in? He's first and foremost interested in consumerism. You know, the standard of living race was a main theme of the Cold War and one that America won very easily, right? You can think back to the, the and the next episode will detail this story. You can think back to the infamous kitchen debate between Khrushchev and Richard Nixon. Um, and so the way he measures the success and failure of that system is in terms of how it can provide various goods and services. How much do things cost? Can Soviet people buy and own cars is a big issue. Now, on the one hand, yes, indeed, Soviet consumers wanted to consume more stuff. They wanted to buy cars. This isn't something that's just imposed on, you know, through American propaganda. However, Soviet people in the 60s were also consuming more and had more access to goods than any other period before. So the question is, is how do you measure the the system? Do you measure it on its own terms or do you measure it according to American terms? And if you measure Soviet consumerism through by the criteria of the United States, of course, the system looks like it's a total failure. Of course, all of these things, these people are living horrible compared to, you know, middle-class white male standards of mid-century America.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in hearing more about uh, this consumerism episode. The next episode, I think it's uh, Teddy Goes Shopping. Teddy Goes Shopping. Mm -hmm. Because I I think we always hear about, um, you know, speaking of soft power in the US, I've had people say to me, well, you know what? What really did the, the Soviets in was, that they, you know, they, they just wanted our culture. They wanted our Levi
1: jeans and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but it sounds like it's a little bit more complicated than that, too, at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, they wanted that stuff. A lot, especially young people, wanted that stuff, right? They wanted to listen to the Beatles, and many did. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's a bit presumptuous. And and this goes to the other thing about American russian or soviet russian relations is that americans have a tendency to evaluate say the soviet system as if soviet people want to be just like them right there's this there's this universalist thrust of american identity that presumes that everyone else in the world just wants to be like us so you know in this issue of consumerism it's basically thinking well of course Soviet people want what we have because we're Americans and they just, they're just little Americans in the making. And if it wasn't for this evil imposed communist system, they would be just like us, right? That's the kind of logic of it. But, you know, when you look at it, like I said, Soviet people are consuming more. And, and I think what's most interesting, like in other advanced societies in the mid 20th century, Soviet people are becoming consumers just like everywhere else. Their identities are tied to how they consume things, uh, what they consume, how much of it they consume, what others consume. Um, they are scrutinizing or consuming or buying things based on different criteria, not just of how much something costs, but what is its affective qualities? Is it in style? Is it modern? Is it European? That's another thing. Like products from Europe were given more, you know, cachet than say Soviet made products or products made in Eastern Europe in the Eastern Bloc were considered higher quality than Soviet products. So you have all of these identity issues, which are not unfamiliar to all of us. Um, And I think that's, what's interesting about this story is that on the one hand, you can't measure Soviet consumer life according to the criteria of American consumer life, but you can see an interesting convergence of modernity and how Soviet people interact with the world around them and interact in terms of being modern consumers and consumer identity.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting part of this story for me, because I think it's always interesting to me that we sort of point out the differences, I Mm -hmm. think, when it comes to uh, other cultures. So, you know, Oh, oh th- this, this culture is completely foreign to us and they're all like borgs. And I'm, I'm sure it's true <laughs> on the opposite end too, where they're yeah. just like, mm-hmm. Oh, you're all dirty Americans and you, you hate black people and you're lynching people. And so, but you kind of tease how, how, you know, in a lot of ways we have more in common than we realize The the regular people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and how we, and that's what's too about the, I think the, the burden of the cold war. And I think this is one of the lessons because that burden, I think is still very much with us is we tend to other, right? We tend to do exactly what you said. We point out the differences. We note how different this place is from our own lives rather than just saying, well, it's different. It's just different. They do things differently. It doesn't have any reflection on how we do things, um, and in that you can find some interesting commonalities and Teddy has some of these these good conversations with with people he's get invited to people's houses on a variety of occasions he thinks there are KGB informants we don't know I seriously doubt that um, just from what I know about the hospitality of Russian people um, but and their interest in foreigners but um, you know, a lot of the things they talk about once they get through all of the like, how do things done in the Soviet Union? How are things done in America? There's a lot of similar issues, right? Um, in the, in this, the end of this episode on consumerism, I, I addressed the issue, what is the Soviet dream, right? Because we have, of course, an American dream. What did Soviet people want from the Soviet system? And honestly, it's not too different than anything that we want. They want to have a good family life. They want to be educated. They want access to goods and services. (laughs) They want their children to prosper. Uh, They want a car. They want a home or apartment. I mean, these aren't foreign things. These are just kind of, you know, it, it says something to me about how, you know, despite the differences of our two political systems, differences in our culture, There's a lot of common things that we both aspire to. And and I think we should start working to that than rather focusing on our differences.
0: No, I I definitely agree with that. And I also think, you know, it's interesting because it brings to mind a guest I had on recently, um, Emil Dreitzer, who uh, he wrote for a satire magazine in the Soviet Union called, I think it was called Crocodile. Crocodile, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, and it's funny because he told me when I interviewed him uh, that Americans were shocked that he wrote for a Soviet satire magazine or publication because they would say soviets can't do satire they don't have right. a sense of humor and I just, <laughs> it's it's bizarre when you think about it that we think that we're that much far apart
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah there's a there, one of my favorite parts of the consumerism episode it it deals with it talks about this um soviet comedian named arkady reichen and he was like the most popular comedian and he did a lot of satire about the soviet system and he has a famous famous act Called deficit, which is shortage. And he he t- he gives this monologue about how he acquired something, you know, really rare. And he was telling a friend about it. And he's like, I got it through this person, through this person, basically through personal connections. And then he he's like, Come to my place and you can try this thing. It's just so wonderful. And 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 then he says, you know, shortage is the engine of social relations. Because in the Soviet system, the lack of goods, to, in order to get access to goods that were in short supply, you had to, money didn't necessarily work. You had to have personal connections. You had to have what's called blot, which is kind of like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And as a result of shortage in Reichen's satire is consumerism in this ironic way produces human relations. And he ends his thing by saying, if there isn't any shortage, then what is there left of human relations? <laughs> if we can have, he says, you know, yes, let's have everything. Let's consume this. Let's consume that. But by God, let us have something in short supply. <laughs> and I thought that was a really interesting um, way of looking at of satirizing the shortage of the Soviet system, but also the re- how to understand its results. Now, the, the last thing I want to say about evaluating Soviet consumerism is in making that episode, I started to think about consumption in light of climate change, where one of the drivers of climate change is one, not the only one, was, is overconsumption, the disposability of consumer products. Right, The fact that you can, we consume all this stuff and then we have to ship the trash somewhere. Perhaps thinking about and reconsidering the role of consumerism in our life and looking at the Soviet system, not as a way to adopt it or replicate it or anything like that, but maybe trying to find different values that aren't so based on consumption because instead of, you know, consumerism was a thing, of course, in the Soviet Union, but it wasn't the only thing. Things like culture, you know, if you go into any educated Russian's home, books, um, other types of values that were were prominent that I think are worth keeping in mind um, in how we move forward in the future.
0: So I, I had mentioned uh, the, the issue of uh race very briefly yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have a whole episode on that. Yeah. And I know that race in the Soviet Union and race relations in the Soviet Union has always interested you. So could you talk a little bit uh, about that issue and about Teddy's
1: experiences? <laughs> right. So one of the things, yeah, I am interested in a race. And in fact, the next documentary I'm working on is on a Black communist who is the only victim of Stalin's terror that we know of. Um, but we can talk about that some other time. Um, Teddy is asked repeatedly, and this was a trope of Soviet propaganda, you know, why are you guys lynching Blacks? What's up with that? What's your problem? Like, why is there so much racism in America? Oh, yeah, we have these problems, but you're still lynching Blacks, right? There's, there's even Soviet jokes about it. Um, whataboutism is essentially the quintessential whataboutism. Um, and, and Teddy, you know, of course, responded to these things, but what I was interested in is using that moment that we mostly write off as propaganda and thinking about, well, maybe there's something more to it, because there is a whole history that historians are have been starting to write about more and more of Soviet anti-racism. As one of the values of being a Soviet person was to stand in solidarity with oppressed people of color, whether they be you know people who are colonized whether they be african americans and there was a certain pride in soviet ideology and also soviet identity of being of not being racist now of course you know that's very idealistic there certainly is race and racism in the soviet union um, however what i was interested in this episode was okay if they're asking Teddy all these questions about why are you still lynching blacks and Teddy is coming to the Soviet Union when Martin Luther King is assassinated in fact he's assassinated a day before Teddy arrives in the Soviet Union um, how do the Soviets understand the American civil rights movement you know in light of this ideology of anti-racism and one of the one of the most things that surprised me the most was how they covered it. I was expecting Soviet media and here I was speaking of print media, Soviet journalists, to talk about the civil rights movement and what you would kind of expect, like all this Marxist-Leninist jargon, stuff about, you know, the communist party in America, how, you know, communism will only free these black people, you know, stuff against the church, all of this stuff. What I was surprised by is how a lot of that was absent. Um, And how well they actually covered the civil rights movement in certain respects. Um, I have a couple of, on the website, there are two translated articles. One is um, an article about SNCC, which I was shocked that the Soviets actually reported on very favorably and very detailed. Um, and an an op-ed in response to Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, And I I encourage people to read them because they're very, very interesting in their analysis. So I wanted to go into- What stands out for you most about those two little documents? The one on SNCC gives an analysis that it says, look, SNCC, these kids, these young people are trying to register Black voters in the South. And- because the white political class in the South understands that their power in Washington is based on suppressing the black vote. And it doesn't matter, it says in the article, it doesn't matter who is elected president because these racist Democrats at the time um, will have influence no matter what because they will always be elected. And I thought that analysis was really astute that at least this journalist understood that American race relations have a very, it wasn't a superficial kind of like, look, you know, look at the American capitalists bashing the heads of these poor black people. It was, it, it highlighted the agency of, of these black activists, especially the young people. It, um, it dealt with the political turmoil as a result of that, with that analysis that I gave, that was really surprising to me. Um, the other thing that was surprising, well, I shouldn't say surprising, but um, I wish there was more understanding in the American context, is the relationship between civil rights and the war in Vietnam. Um, in one of the op-eds in response to King's assassination, they wrote, the author wrote, the, the same bullet that killed King is the same bullet being used to kill in, in Vietnam, which I thought was a, a, a really astute analysis. Um, but not just in terms of like, they didn't denigrate King, which is what I expected because he was a real, he's a, you know, pastor, but they also, you know, covered uh, Fred Hampton's murder a little bit. They only mentioned Malcolm X once they mentioned um, other smaller figures, particularly if they were, they were beaten or murdered Medgar, um, Edgar's Edgar's for, for example, um, Stokely Carmichael, they mentioned. So they had a like a better, and of course, Angela Davis, which was the big one and the Black Panthers to some extent too. But they certainly were covering it in far more detail than I expected. And not just in these like- Not broad, just as
0: like a whataboutism type
1: Not thing. A, just about a whataboutism and not just these kind of broad ideological like you know memes. Um, and And the other thing that came across too is that you can see in reading some of these articles that the journalists really- um, connected with the values uh, and the moral authority of these civil rights activists, which was another interesting aspect that they they seemed to be able to they understood this what they were doing and what their, what the language they were using to some extent and I can't help wonder as a Soviet journalist writing about the civil rights movement how do you understand Soviet society as a result that I don't have an answer for unfortunately
0: yeah it's really interesting to me because. You know, I've covered, like I said, I, I've talked to Emil Dreitzer before about his experiences in the Soviet Union. And he was, you know, since he's uh, from a Jewish background, mm-hmm. he would he would talk a little bit about experiences of anti-Semitism right. that he had in the Soviet Union. So I, I feel like there's there's a lot of things going on at once where you have, you probably do have Absolutely. racism and xenophobia in the Soviet Union. And you also, at the other end of that, have people that are very sincerely committed to a sort of anti-racist ideology yes. as well. So it's it's very it gets very complicated i think in a way. And and that's the whole point.
1: You know, I'm not I'm not trying to say that the Soviet Union was some sort of ideal anti-racist utopia. Um anti-racist was a a sincere belief, a sincere ideological value. It was also a pragmatic foreign policy. It was also a propaganda weapon. It was it was also a way to um, allied criticisms of the Soviet Union. And at the same time, you would have anti-Semitism. You would have violence and discrimination against particularly African students who come to the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s to study. You have, of course, uh, you know, racist or ethnic discrimination against non-Russian minorities in the Soviet Union. So... Yes, you have. You have just because there's an ideology, doesn't mean that it's a not sincere, and b, um, you know, utopian. <laughs> it's not either of those things. As you said, it's complicated, and I wanted to elucidate some of those complications.
0: Yeah, and I also think it's interesting. I mean, this is slightly off topic, I guess, mm-hmm. in a way, but it's related to all of this. Is uh, people will talk about how uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, Used racism in the U.S. as like a, a, a propaganda tool, but mm-hmm. in a way, that very propaganda forces us to address a lot of well, the issues we were having with civil rights. So in a way, they're they're almost accidentally helping us to. They're forcing us to
1: address our own issues. Well, if you if you read the scholarship, there's a whole book written about this. There's a couple of books, actually, I should say, written about this. The fact that, and, and it made me wonder about this in terms of like looking at the civil rights movement in the late '50s and '60s and say Black Lives Matter today. The difference is the Cold War. The Cold War, because racism was an international issue, not just from Soviet propaganda, but from Western allies, and certainly from the decolonized world. The United States, because of its Soviet adversary, had to somehow live up to the ideals (laughs) that it preached to the point where you have, and I, and I, I, this is in the documentary, when um, the NAACP is, is getting ready to t- go and deal with school desegregation with Brown v. Board of Education, the US State Department is writing uh, briefs in support of that case, because they're saying, look, when we go abroad, to say Africa or Asia or wherever, we're asked, what is up with, with this going on in the United States? And, and also, and this is a story that I wish I there is more attention on, maybe somebody has dealt with it. When Black or African diplomats or diplomats from the Caribbean come to the United States, they are Jim Crowed. So you have reports in the newspaper, in the New York Times and stuff from the 60s, 50s and 60s of black diplomats, say, going to Maryland and not being able to get a hotel. And so it becomes an international issue. And as a result, there is this pressure for the United States to deal with it. Whereas today, there's no pressure in this sense, because there's no global you know, struggle over ideals and values.
0: I was going to say, you can even apply that to other things in the sense of, it's weird. I often tell people, I think that the cold war in its own way had uh, certain positive benefits in the sense of, and don't get me wrong. I'm no, not, no, I yeah, completely agree but, with you. <laughs> but what I mean is like, um, you know, I think there was an idea. Oh, we have to, you know, keep up with the Soviets when it comes to culture and art. Mm-hmm. So there was more funding of science arts by the state. Yeah, and science. And you know, I think uh, even with like the rise of communism earlier in the century, I think labor had a lot of wins because people in the U.S. were thinking, well, we have to do something. We don't want them to go full communist.
1: <laughs> I think there's there's a lot to that, and scholars of the civil rights movement have pointed this out as well. Um, That, you know, granted, we're not trying to take the agency away from those activists, you know, on the ground who are fighting and dying for their rights. But at the same time, it creates a context. The other thing that's interesting about the Cold War and the civil rights movement, and this is something I'll be dealing with in the other documentary I'm doing on the 20s and 30s, but it allowed for people, Black activists, to connect with Indian activists, you know. Indian, India kicked out the British. What is their experience? It created an international movement, an international connections that I think is sorely missing today, you know, in this like lines of international solidarity. And one can say what you can about Soviet anti-racist policy and its pragmatism and its cynicism and everything. But you cannot deny the fact that the Soviet Union provided material aid to help um, people fight against colonialism. So there, there's power in the fact that a major state like the Soviet Union rhetorically supports oppressed people. And in the 1920s and 1930s, for example, African-Americans understood this very quickly, that there are value, there's, there's power in the fact that this country over there, the only country in the world who's anti-colonial. Uh, or major power in the world, I should say, and it gave them a lot to a lot of way to evaluate American society, but also more importantly, allowed them to develop a net an international network.
0: So I know we're running up against the hour here, and there were just maybe one or two more things sure. I wanted to cover, and I, I don't want to give away all the episodes uh, just <laughs> in this one sitting. But sure, I, I was interested in uh, talking a little bit about Teddy's experience with uh you know the the quote unquote regular people yeah. of the Soviet Union and what that says about their lived experience within the Soviet system.
1: Mhm. So um that, that that's the la- the fifth episode is about essentially trying to capture everyday life. Now a, f- a couple of caveats first. First off, you know, Teddy did not interact with you know regular working working class people, people from collective farms. Most of his interactions were in the vast majority of them were urbanites, educated People in you know, and he gets invited to a couple of people's homes. Uh, one in Kiev, he meets a couple at uh, at an opera, and they invite him over and actually take him around and host him for a day. Um, he has other people he interacts with. So, what I wanted to do with that episode is trying to capture: okay, what is their life like? Like, what is their apartment? What is their aspirations? What is their work day like? What are what do they want out of this? Um, now, the first thing one should say is that Teddy, there is this in the one of the, the Cold War context for this is is such because the Soviet Union was viewed as only propaganda, right? If you go to the Soviet Union, you're only going to be fed and told what they want you to hear and see. So, how do you get around that? Well, you interact with the quote-unquote regular Soviet citizen because then you can get below the propaganda and see what quote real Soviet life is like. And so Teddy had that perspective too. He didn't want official meetings. He wanted to meet regular people um, because he felt, you know, if he, he wouldn't learn about real Soviet life, but then at the same time, he constantly had these views that perhaps they were informants. He was questioned whether, you know, did this person sit next to me on a train because uh, they were, supposed to be there? Or is it really a genuine kind of interaction? So there is that Cold War covering. Um, his interactions, because of his own personal interests, he was interested in how Soviet people understood their political system. Um, you know, who did they have any uh, role in shaping or shaping Soviet politics? Uh, and of course, he compared this sometimes quite naively, I think, to the American system. So he would say things like, well, you know, yeah, you can't, you don't vote in America. It's one person, one vote. And at one point I'm like, Teddy, this is 1960s, man. There are no one person, one vote. (laughs) You have people fighting and dying for one person, one vote. Like this is a really naive view of American society. Um, But what kind of he discovered is, that the people he interact with, you know, when you look, I think when you're looking for the quote unquote, regular Soviet citizen to learn about real Soviet life, you're expecting them to be dissatisfied. And what you have is, yeah, they're dissatisfied, but they're also satisfied. You know, they're not really interested or care that they're kind of like, I mean, I don't want to be banal about it, but their, their views on life are, are no different than most people, you know, they're not, well, it's, totally- it's like in America. I think we have a I lot mean, of people that are alternately satisfied and dissatisfied with abso- life at the Absolutely. Same time. And, and I think that's the, that's the thing. I mean, I guess in a way, like my story is trying to normalize life there to a certain extent in the sense of like, people are complex. Um, they, the systems they live in a lot of times function like water, you know, you can't step outside of it. You can't really, even if you have an oppositional perspective, it's still within the system, to, to a large extent. Um, and how Soviet people like went about their work workday, um, you know, getting up in the morning, going to work, etc. At the end, though, what really fascinated me was again, this is another point of potential convergence is that by the late sixties and early 1970s, Soviet people seem to be becoming, having a sense of alienation that we see throughout the Western world in the seventies. Now the standard story is that, well, Soviet ideology was totally empty, right? It was just performative. There's no content there. Um, but as one, uh, al- uh one person I interviewed for the, for the series, Alexei Gulubyov, said that, well, not only do you have a skepticism of politics and ideology in the Soviet Union, you also have a skepticism of science. You have people gravitating to, you know, third world, not third world, I should say, gravitating to like horoscopes and astrology and UFOs and conspiracy theories. The, The master narratives that govern Soviet society, but also govern American society are fragmenting and people are turning more inward. So you get the explosion. And this was a real surprise to me, to me of self-help books in the Soviet union in the 1970s, how to conduct your life, how to have a good marriage, how to have a good sexual life, how to, um, you know, express your inner self type type stuff, um, and that was really fascinating to me. You get a different type of, um, as Alexei put it, biopolitics of the self, of the governing self. And it's as a re- partially as a result of consumer society, mass media, and a general alienation and fragmenting of the master narratives that govern, say, Soviet society. And you see similar manifestations in other places in the world as well.
0: In some ways, it seems like... Um... Teddy goes to the USSR is, you know, you mentioned modernity earlier. It's almost about modernity in the 20th century. A story of that.
1: Yeah, it is partially a story of that. um, Because, you know, it, it, and that's what I think one of the things that struck me as someone who, in my my studies of Soviet history, I know a lot less about the 1960s and 1970s than I do about the 20s and 30s. So, really, um, doing the research for this was, I learned a lot as well. And one of the things I did learn from all of the scholarship many people I know personally are doing, except people I talk to, is you get an experience of the late 20th century that is what we call today globalization.
0: So in closing here, I guess, why should people be interested in the subject of an American tourist that goes to... The USSR, I mean, we're, the USSR is gone. How, how is this relevant to today maybe and in, in, in U.S.-Russia relations
1: today? Well, uh, in a few ways. First off, um, like I said earlier, I think the shadow of the Cold War continues to structure our brain. Um, we tend Probably to- Probably in
0: both the U.S. and <coughs> Russia.
1: <laughs> very much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no exclusivity here on the American side though, you know, because I live in America, I can talk more about that. But yes, it. we still- look at each other, uh, in a binary way. Um, we, we look at the world in a binary way, look at the way, you know, as tensions increase between the United States and Russia in the last 15 years or so, how terms like the new cold war, right. The, you know, all of this kind of rhetoric from the past is coming back that really frames how we understood, say the Soviet Union and how the Soviets understood America. Um, And this is despite the fact that, you know, Russia is a capitalist country that, you know, until a couple of months ago was fully integrated into Western economic and financial systems. Um, So I think part of that is a reminder that we, this still structures how we look at things. The second thing is, is that, you know, to, and this is another thing I've been interested in for a while is the role of Russia slash Soviet Union in the American imagination and how a lot of that imagination is really about us. How so? Because, so take the simple reason if, oh, the Soviet Union, our greatest enemy, oh, they think communism is going to rule the world. They're going to bury us, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, look, you go into one of their department stores and they don't have as much stuff that, that you can buy in America. Well, that means that look how great the American system is. It reaffirms our own sense of superiority, um, which I think is another problem in the sense that we we have a tendency to other um, and we have a tendency to use that otherness for our own... Um, Psychological and social superiority and comfort. And I think that, say, uh, and I just read something this morning to talk about the current war, the role of the war in bolstering American international leadership that has been flagging and declining and problematic for the last 20 years. Right. It revitalizes the American idea. It revitalizes the, the, the West as a social political cultural entity. Right. And the, sort of, you know, it, it helps people wipe away the uh, bad memories of Iraq. <laughs> yeah. And amongst many other things. Absolutely. It says, you know, so I think that is the other lesson that You know, I think we need to be self-critical and aware of when we create these differences and we, you know, differences are fine when we do, when we move into othering, I think we have to ask ourselves, what is this othering serving a narcissistic purpose? And in that move, what domestic crises are we sublimating as a result?
0: So just one last thing, because I, I had just thought of that. Mm-hmm. Do you think that also maybe was going on with the Soviet Union as well? And I'm not getting into like Soviet Union bashing, saying this, but like, for, for instance, you had mentioned that they would always say to Teddy, why, why do you do all these racist things mm-hmm. to black Americans? Do you think there's also maybe a a moral superiority thing and otherizing that goes on with the Soviets?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. That's definitely in this, the Soviet case, it's, it's, that's the irony is that both they, both the United States and the Soviet Union acted as dark mirrors for each other because you can say, you know, yeah, things are whatever here, but look at over there, look at what they're doing, Right. Um, you know, the, the the Putin government's been doing this for years, too, like focusing on social unrest and all of the problems, say, in the United States and saying, look, you see, this is what you get with democracy, right? We have a stable system, you know, this kind of stuff. So it very much works on both sides in terms of like, I mean, that's the, the core of what whataboutism is exactly that, right? But I think it sometimes we have to actually ask, okay, yeah, but what about that? <laughs> we shouldn't, you know, if just by calling something "what aboutism" doesn't mean the criticism is invalid. <laughs> so well, sometimes you know, we have to look in the mirror. Sometimes we have to look in the mirror, and in that reflection, we don't see the other. That's the issue. You know, we don't see the, you know, the 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 negation of ourself.
0: Well, hey, Sean,
1: I want to thank you for coming on Parallax. Can you let my listeners know how they can keep up? Yeah. So there's two podcasts, um, the SRB podcast, which is a weekly interview show about uh, Eurasian politics, culture, and history. Just search on your favorite podcast app, SRB podcast, or go to srbpodcast.org. And then you can find the Teddy Goes to the USSR, which is a six episode documentary series. Just search Teddy Goes to the USSR in your favorite podcast app, or go to teddy2ussr.com and you can find it there. (sighs)
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sean Guillory, and that you'll check out his podcasts, the SRB podcast, and Teddy Goes to the USSR. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com parallaxviews One more time, that's patreon.com parallaxviews it is you, the listener, that makes this show possible. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with my Jay- View To Parallax with J- Michael. Views <Yin->. with J.G. Michael.
1: The way out is not simply to say, <laughs> don't do it just to prohibit If nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you, know, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh,